Welcome to Future Hindsight, a podcast that takes big ideas about civic life and democracy and turns them into action items for you and me. I'm Mila Atmos. We've been deeply engaged in conversations about the disparate visions for and of America, the attacks on democracy everywhere, at all levels of government, and the ways we can get engaged for a democracy that works for all Americans. An essential part of doing that, as we all know, is to be well-informed. And there's one book that felt to me as being the most accessible for everyday readers in telling the story of the various movements that powered our continuous shift to the right, starting with a strong yearning for nostalgia that has led us to the extreme kind of capitalism that we see in the U.S. today. And I thought we should revisit our conversation with the author. We were joined by the legendary writer Kurt Anderson in the spring of 2021, and we discussed his deeply researched book, Evil Geniuses, The Unmaking of America, A Recent History. At the time of our conversation, we were both hopeful about the American Rescue Plan Act and the then newly elected administration of Joe Biden. We were confident that a fairer America was coming to fruition. Well, it isn't quite thus, but the recent victory of the UPS union, the increased minimum wage in many states, and the writers and actress strikes are a sign that workers are uniting around a common vision and belief in fairness and acting upon it. They are an example to us all. In fact, that's what the evil geniuses did. Let's listen in. Thank you for joining us. It is my pleasure to be with you. Your book is titled Evil Geniuses, The Unmaking of America, A Recent History. Who are these evil geniuses and why do you call them that? I realized as I wrote this story and as I researched the story, there were individuals. It wasn't just a matter of forces and, and institutions and it just happened. There were important characters along the way, beginning with somebody like Milton Friedman back in, well, the 30s and 40s, and then finally in the 60s and 70s, who set up this idea that all that mattered <laughs> and all that ought to matter were profits, and that greed was good. I don't really include exactly Ronald Reagan among the evil geniuses, but sure, Ronald Reagan was one. Certainly today, Mitch McConnell is one. And the corporate CEOs of, of the world created this thing called the Business Roundtable, which for the first time got American corporate CEOs of the biggest corporations together in this kind of capitalist politburo, really, to start mobilizing and lobbying for the sake of big business. This had really never been done in the way they started doing it in the 1970s. So they are both intellectuals of the libertarian far economic right, far right back then in the 70s when they began their their, their evil geniusing. There are far right politicians, there are lobbyists, there are people like Charles Koch. Charles Koch is definitely one of my evil geniuses, this libertarian billionaire who he started this political project that was really under the radar for decades, but that then finally was successful in the 90s at beginning to really take over the Republican Party as the main vehicle, but not the only vehicle, of the evil geniuses. And their desire first in the early 70s to 
stop from being swept away by what they were afraid was a socialist revolution in America. That didn't happen. And then by the late 70s, they'd built their institutions, these think tanks and lobbying firms and all the rest, and saw that, wait, we, we not only haven't been swept away, we can go further and we can take over and we can turn back the New Deal, which seemed like an impossibility just a few years ago. But then it didn't. And they kept going and they won. And, uh, and here we are. Yeah, they kept going. You talked about Ronald Reagan. You don't really necessarily consider him an evil genius, but he was the arbiter of nostalgia at the time and who was the perfect messenger for this new paradigm of greed is good and that corporations must first and foremost benefit the shareholders. What is the role of nostalgia in making this radical right shift palatable and almost under the radar, like you said? It was an organic thing coming off, as I tell the story anyway, it was in the late 60s when everything had become so maniacally new, 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 for better, in my view, maybe as well as worse. But then it reached this kind of extreme moment in the 60s. So there was a kind of natural public reaction against that to some degree and like into nostalgia first for just Wow, what were things like back in our sweet, innocent time 10 years ago, before Kennedy was assassinated, before all this craziness of the 1960s happened, before the Vietnam War? What was that like? So there was first this nostalgia for the, for the 50s and the early 60s. But then that quickly in, in the pop culture spread into a generalized nostalgia for the American past of the 40s and the 30s and the 20s. And the right, my evil geniuses, understood, wait a minute, we can use this nostalgia that's afoot for the charming, beautiful, wonderful, seductive past and politicize it and, and present Ronald Reagan and republicanism as this lovely, wonderful return to small town, pleasant America. See, I'm falling into a Ronald Reagan voice. Before... It all went kerplooey here in the 1960s and 70s. Instead of saying, we want to get rid of Social Security and get rid of uh, the New Deal and get rid of Medicare and, and make your life harder, they sold it as part of this return to America the way it was when we were living in nice small towns and we were cowboys. And, and you know me, Ronald Reagan, who played cowboys and heroes and good guys. And, and by the way, it wasn't just some frontman idiot. He was a sincere, studied up on it, libertarian, economic right winger. He'd become that. He'd gone from being a union man, president of his Screen Actors Union, to being this right winger in, in, over in the 50s. So he became, as it turned out, even though seemed, he seemed kind of a ridiculous and extreme candidate to the establishment Republicans in the 1970s, he was a perfect candidate to do what they needed doing, to, to make this radical shift in the kind of American paradigm, get rid of the New Deal, but make it nice and sweet and kind looking and, and full of this Americana resonance. Yeah, I heard a radio interview where the person said, yeah, Ronald Reagan just delivered every message with a smile. He just smiled a lot, but he said really cruel things. He had really cruel <laughs> policies. Unlike Donald Trump, you know, 
And the Republican Party, by the time of Trump, had this other post-Reagan viciousness and just crazy monomania about the things that Ronald Reagan had started. But also, obviously, Donald Trump didn't say everything with a smile or kindly, which is an interesting sort of bookend to what began with Ronald Reagan. Yeah. Well, so what are the key things that happened in the 80s, the epitome of the right turn for everyday workers? Well, there were so many, but the one that very few people were against at the time were these massive, radical income tax cuts. Taxes had already been cut from their heights of the 1950s and early 60s in America when things were going fine and we had really high income taxes on the rich. And then in 1981, they were cut in half for well-to-do people and cut somewhat for everyone else. But the whole point, as the Reagan Knights said, this is really all about cutting taxes dramatically for rich people and big business. But the other big thing that they did in 1981 as well was they began crushing organized labor. They went into high gear in fighting unions and being anti-union. And Ronald Reagan did it in his first six months in office by firing all of the unionized air traffic controllers who had gone out on strike and said, no, you're federal workers, you can't go on strike. They said, we're going out on strike. And the next day fired them. And that was that for that union and those workers. And of course, ironically, they were one of the two big unions who had just a few months earlier endorsed him for the presidency. It was this amazing signal to big business to say, there's a new boss in town and a new set of norms in town, not new laws, but just a new norm about unions. And if your workers go on strike, then you settle the strike, you don't have to hire them back. And that had always been legally so since the New Deal for, you know, more than 40 years, but it wasn't done. That would be too vicious. That would be too wrong. That wouldn't be fair. But then, you know, as the 80s rolled out after this air traffic controller strike Reagan busted, they did it again and again and again. And and by the end of that decade, what had already been a decline in union membership accelerated And workers began saying, wow, unions don't do anything for me. And instead of suddenly saying, well, I'm going to vote against Republicans because this Reagan administration has crushed my union movement, they became Reagan Democrats. You know, they voted for Ronald Reagan. It changed our politics and crushed unions and and, and really reduced uh, worker power in general across the board. Because even if you weren't in a union, It was so much about norms that had changed rather than laws, where big businesses were suddenly given the green light to say, no, we don't owe anything to our employees as we used to. We don't have to offer them affordable health care. We don't have to give them fixed pensions like we did. This new right-leaning, right-wing economic paradigm was suddenly the one that had replaced the New Deal. I call it the raw deal. Reagan didn't run on this. He ran on this, oh, no, life will be better, morning in America. It was hard to run against. And of course, their idea was, supply side idea of of economics was, we radically cut taxes on rich people and big business, and they will work so hard and be so profitable that they'll create jobs for everybody, and it's a win-win, and everybody will be okay. Well, and what happened was, it was a win for the well-to-do and big business, and has been ever since whose incomes and wealth have increased, as everybody's used to. But 
The other 80% of America, it's been flatlined ever since. Those were the two big changes that happened in the 80s. There are hundreds of smaller changes that became gigantic changes, like suddenly in the 80s, the federal government saying, okay, big companies, you can spend as much money as you want. First of all, you can buy back your stock. You can use your profits to buy shares of your stock to make the price of the stock go up. That used to be essentially illegal. And suddenly in 1982, it wasn't. And then there's a hundred things like that that served in so many different ways to fortify and increase the power of, and the wealth of the wealthy and big business that, that were done in small and large ways starting in the 80s. And until really the last decade or so, that basic new paradigm that was imposed economically hasn't been challenged in this country by the Democrats. I mean, here and there along the way, you know, Jesse Jackson in 1988, other people. But Democrats became sort of the liberal Republicans because there were no more liberal Republicans. Democrats had to play them in, in terms of economics. And, and that's what happened. So why do Democrats embrace neoliberalism and help some of these evil geniuses rig the economy for the rich? Like, how did that come about? Well, it came about when certain liberals, certain wonky college-educated liberals started calling themselves neoliberals. It wasn't a pejorative. It was like, you know, we're neoliberals. We're new liberals. Gary Hart was one of them. Most of the Democrats, the leading Democratic U.S. senators that then ran for president were neoliberals. So they were Democrats. They were liberals. But first of all, they decided, nah, unions are not who we are necessarily. And they decided the New Deal is not what we are necessarily. We're not about regulation. We're not about minimum wage. We're not about overtime pay. We're not about all those old, fusty 1930s things. We're new in this new computer age. And so there was a certain amount of naive earnestness about going to the center and compromising, and maybe government is bloated. So it began that way. And a lot of leading Democrats, and certainly the elite, by nature of being elite, were affluent. They were doing okay in the new system. You know, in the new paradigm in the 80s and 90s, like, hey, it's too bad about these manufacturing workers no longer having jobs on that, but eh, I'm doing okay. They didn't say that, but that fed the neoliberal idea. One of the phrases that became this common phrase you started hearing in, in the 80s especially is, I'm fiscally conservative, but socially liberal, which meant don't do anything to take any of my wealth away because I'm affluent. But if you want to be gay, if you want to smoke weed, if you want to do what, you know, oh, of course, women should have equality. All those things, that cost me no money. Sure, I'm down with it. Civil rights, that too. Yes, absolutely. You know, the, the sort of old-fashioned leftism economically that FDR, for instance, embodied, just came to seem more old-fashioned as the Soviet Union collapsed and communism collapsed. And the general left state intervention in markets idea came to seem old and obsolete. And that encouraged this neoliberal idea among Democrats in America that like, yeah, we're all free marketers now. We, we, there, there really can't be a critique of maximum libertarian economics because that's just silly. That, that really came to be the, the default idea in America. And, and of course, led to all kinds of uh, bad results, including, I think, white working class voters in America saying there's these two parties. There's really not that much difference between them on economics. 
But there are differences on these cultural issues. And this other party, the Republican Party, kind of hates the same people I do. So I'm going with them. That's obviously a simplification, but I think that is the story that happened in terms of how this giant economic change has affected politics ever since. There ceased to be much of a national progressive economic alternative. There just wasn't between and including Bill Clinton and Barack Obama. Well, one of the things that really struck me is that you said offshoring jobs ended about 10 years ago. There was nothing else to offshore, and now we're just doing robots uh, and AI all over the world. And I think in my mind, it makes a lot of sense that in the last 10 years, people have now finally spoken up about antitrust issues and labor issues and the fact that the minimum wage has been frozen for a decade, which is essentially a 30% pay cut, and health insurance and all of these things that people kind of didn't understand were really happening. And now I think they're finally changing the conversation. This book came out when Donald Trump might have been reelected, you know, when the idea that Joe Biden was going to become president was still an iffy proposition. And I was trying to be hopeful, you know, and I am hopeful right now because I do think Joe Biden and the people around him understand that there has been a change, exactly the change you're talking about, which is to say that a decade ago, this hadn't crystallized and coalesced in too many people's minds, the rigged economy. Then you had both the Occupy Wall Street people on the left and the Donald Trumpists and Donald Trump himself on the right starting to talk about the very same thing, the rigged economy that Wall Street has robbed you and, and destroyed jobs and factories and livelihoods and all the rest. It began to crystallize and seep into the general appreciation that something has gone wrong here. And of course, different people have different ways of explaining it. And in the case of the Republican Party, they actually don't want you to think about that, even though Donald Trump, when he ran the first time, made an extraordinary, you know, uh, and essentially a Bernie Sanders pitch about how Wall Street and big corporations have screwed you. The fact that Donald Trump successfully ran on that as part of his 2016 platform, really, is evidence of what you're talking about, that, wait a minute, this isn't right. This is just unfair and Part of my own journey to research and write this book was to really try to nail down what happened, why, when, what. So my goal was to try to say, no, it was in this way, as opposed to all the ways it was worse back in the day, it was better. Not that we're going to go back to 1976 in every respect, but that that in, in my lifetime and the lifetime of many Americans, it was dramatically hijacked for the benefit of the right and the rich. It used to be different. Why was it changed? Oh, this is why things are so bad for most people now. Rather than just sort of accept it as a given, which of course the people in power want you to do. This is just the way it is. Sorry, you're not as rich as I am, but you know, what are you gonna do? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, I hear that all the time. So how did you conduct your research? How long did it take you? And what were the things to you that were so surprising to discover since, you know, you lived through this time and you were even the editor of Spy Magazine, which I think was hypercritical of exactly these people? Sure. And again, I, I write about that a bit. We were this satirical mag magazine that savaged Donald Trump in particular, and lots of these people. But we 
didn't see it as a systemic problem as much as others did at the time, and certainly I do now. But the research, in a way, started with my previous uh, nonfiction book, which was called Fantasyland, which was a longer, deeper history of America and how things had gone wrong about what we now know as the alternative facts or post-truth problem, which I was noticing and seeing getting worse and worse and worse in so many ways, religious extremism and otherwise, for years, I wrote about how it had always been part of the American character, this sort of weakness for exciting falsehoods and myths of various kinds, and how then it had been politicized by the right in the last 20 years or 30 years. As I was finishing that book, I, I realized, wait, there's another half of this story that I could tell, which is, okay, there's this one thing that was more or less organic, and it involved nostalgia, and it involved various peculiarities of American American history, but it was kind of organic, and then it was used by the right. And so what, what led to Evil Geniuses was trying to figure out exactly how and why that happened. So one was about the terrific irrationality that was always, for better and worse, part of America and, and where it led us. And then this other part of the story was how these very, very rational people, guys, in the 70s and 80s and since, weaponized and used that irrationality and alternative thinking and all the rest to get their way. And so I just began reading about the, all these things I knew a little bit about because I read, I've been a journalist, you know, but really understanding Wall Street and what people mean when they say financialization. And yeah, I've heard of the Federalist Society and how they took over the law, but what is that really about? So all of these kind of bullet points I was more or less aware of. I then just, I spent a year and a half doing nothing but reading and talking to experts and researching with, with hunches and with a basic sense of how did things get so unfair and miserable in so many ways, economically for most people. And I was amazed again and again by all kinds of things I discovered. I mean, the thing I mentioned earlier about how I remember thinking when I first learned in the 1980s that companies were buying their own shares of stock back to goose their stock price. I thought, that, that doesn't sound right. And But then, I, well, who cares? That wasn't my, you know, specialty or anything. So I went on. But that was like a thing I discovered like, whoa, this was just changed in 1982 by the Reagan administration's SEC, right? Uh, you mentioned the minimum wage. I kind of knew how the government and Congress basically just avoided the political problem of, of they never cut the minimum wage. They just let inflation do the job for them. And by, by the end of the 80s, it was down the minimum wage to effectively what it, around what it is now, seven and a quarter, where it stayed ever since. Because they raise it, but once they, they let inflation lower the effective rate from 10 or 12 bucks to seven bucks, and like, okay, we're good now. But that happened in so many different ways. It happened in how Social Security uh, taxes and benefits were paid. It happened in overtime pay and how many people did or didn't get overtime. And so there's all these sort of stealth ways that each of which surprised me. I guess one of the biggest was I didn't know that this crushing of the unions, how ruthlessly and decisively and swiftly it happened in the 1980s. That was kind of amazing to me. There, there is this thing that when I discovered, I almost, I didn't want to believe it in a certain way because it's such a, 
It's so much like the beginning of a conspiracy theory. And my previous book had been all about like debunking conspiracy theories, right? This thing called the Powell Memo, this guy Lewis Powell, who was a big lawyer, and just months before he was appointed to the Supreme Court by Richard Nixon, he wrote this memo that was commissioned by the Chamber of Commerce laying out what big business and American capitalists had to do to take back the system and to run things again and to to be in charge. And what's amazing about it is just this guy, and he wasn't even a Supreme Court justice yet, and it's a memo for the Chamber of Commerce. Who cares? But in retrospect, he laid out what is now the history of the 1970s and 80s. He laid it out in this succinct lawyer's brief of 40 pages or whatever it was, saying, we do the media, we do the think tanks, we start lobbying, we actually... Boom, boom, boom. All the pieces of this war, effectively, that my evil geniuses then started to wage, he laid out and was amazingly successful. So to read that was extraordinary. I mean, I didn't discover it, and lots of journalists, obviously, and people had seen it, but I found that I wasn't alone among people I knew and my friends in finding this amazing and, and new. But these various other memos along the way, another memo that one of these... Uh, billionaire right-wingers commissioned about how can we how can we take over the law? How can we get the law working better for the right? And this memo that just laid out, you got to do this Federalist Society kind of thing. He didn't call it the Federalist Society, but you got to start a kind of brotherhood, sisterhood of conservatives on at law schools and fund it properly. And here's how you do it. A hundred-page memo describing what the Federalist Society two years later, started, became, and took over the law and changed the nature of the law to, once again, tilt it in favor of, of big business. Basically, all of my hunches were confirmed. You know, and I have a deeper, subtler understanding of things, but, I mean, my jaw just kept dropping. I kept saying, wow. I mean, how did this happen? Even, as you say, there I was, reading the paper, being a journalist, how did I not realize what was going on? And, and partly it's because, well, it works better if even those of us who are supposedly more observant and thoughtful aren't aware of it. And that wasn't exactly coincidental. And because it was so many of the changes were so small and boring and like, who cares about some change in an SEC rule or this regulatory thing? Well, the thousand of them or the 10,000 of them add up to this big change that then looks like, eh, no, nobody did this. It just happened. So it, it, the, whole, the whole of it amazed me. I had this moment when I'd done all my research and I went through it and I just started searching through my notes for like 1980s or 1980 this or 1980. And I saw that, wow, obviously Ronald Reagan had been elected in 1980 and that was a big time, but I hadn't realized how many things had so radically changed before and after the 1980s. And, and so it was, you know, I, I felt like one of those people with corkboard and thumbtacks and, and string like a nut. But it was a kind of a series of holy cow moments that felt like a big epiphany. And, and yeah, it was just a year and a half of, of all kinds of research. We're taking a short break to tell you about a fellow Democracy Group podcast that we know you'll enjoy. How Do We Fix It is solutions journalism. Every week, Richard Davies and Jim Meigs invite expert guests to discuss their ideas about how to make the world a better place. 
This podcast is playful, informal, and at times, very serious. From democracy and politics to our cultural and personal divides, How Do We Fix It considers practical, constructive solutions aimed at bringing us a bit closer together, not further apart. Find How Do We Fix It at www.howdowefixit.me or wherever you get your podcasts. And now, let's return to my conversation with Kurt Anderson. What I like the most about your book is that there are so many answers there, or so many possible answers there, I should say, that can help us get out of this. You know, it took us 40 years to get here. Hopefully, it will not take us 40 years to get out. You write about how Norway and Denmark and Finland have done this and how Alaska has done this amazing thing. Can you talk to us about what Alaska accomplished and why it worked so well? And and also how funnily the person who made that happen was a libertarian. Yeah. I had known about this thing that Alaska has done for many years, which is to send a significant size check to every citizen, every man, woman, and child every year. That is a percentage of the wealth that they have gotten from oil companies for the drilling that has gone on for the last 50 years in the North Slope of Alaska. So they find oil. This most conservative, most Republican, libertarian, pioneer state, right? Alaska. It hadn't been a state for very long when this happened. This one professor who had come up from the lower 48 and was an economics professor at the University of Alaska, who was both, as he called himself, an anarchist and a socialist, And somebody asked him, what should we do with all these billions of dollars we're going to suddenly have from the oil companies? And he said, well, the only way it's going to do any good is some of it goes directly to the people. Well, that took off. And the Republican governor said, yep, I agree with that. And they created this thing called the Permanent Fund of Alaska, which put this fraction of all the billions of dollars of oil royalties that Alaska got and still gets into this fund and then, as I say, divided it up absolutely equally. Children get as much as adults. Every adult gets as much as every other adult. So it is this little universal basic income and not that little. It's some years it has been as high as $4,000 or more a person, which is you have a family of four, that's 16,000 right there. So it's a lot of money. I mean, it's enough extra money, certainly at the lower levels and for the indigenous people in Alaska to really make a difference in their lives in this most Republican of states. So these days, as Republicans call any modestly capital D Democratic uh, social program, socialist, it's socialist. Here is this Republican state that has had this absolutely socialist expropriating oil wealth and giving it to everybody program that, by the way, former Governor Sarah Palin increased the, the amount that they would take from the oil companies and increase the size of these annual payments. You know, it really goes to the stupid, pointless quality of so much of this quote-unquote debate. Well, that's socialism. We hate socialism. Here, my God, in Alaska, it really is. And yet, do the Republicans and the good libertarian people of Alaska hate it? Are they rejecting it? Are they getting rid of it? No way. So I just found the Alaska thing and the, and the story of how it happened and this professor who was the source of it, this socialist anarchist, it was fantastic because it just shows you that 
if you, if you take away your pre-existing pigeonholes and binaries of, you know, free market or socialist, well, that's stupid. Every free market so-called society in the world also has social democracy. Among the freest of the free market economies, the ones you mentioned, Norway, Finland, Sweden, Denmark, also have these huge social welfare states. So, you know, it's not one or the other. In their case, it's both. Yeah, I think that's a great takeaway. What do you think is the most promising part about the American Rescue Plan? And do you think that in this moment, this inflection point, as you would call it, whether it will succeed to change our trajectory? Fingers crossed. When the election went the right way, I thought, okay, it's not happy days are here again, but we are not falling into the abyss. We have stepped away from the abyss. The, the, this American Rescue Plan says several things to me. Again, my hope for it is that it, along with a much more effective rollout of the vaccine and dealing with the pandemic, together with the economic uh, stimulus and of elements of the rescue plan, has to have the effect over the next year, and I hope beyond, of convincing Americans that, wait a minute, this thing they've been saying since Ronald Reagan and before that government doesn't solve the problem, the federal government is your enemy, the federal government is not the solution to the problem, the federal government is the problem. All that thing that has just been buzzing in Americans' brains for almost a half century, they'll say, like, wait a minute, no, that we needed the federal government to deal with the pandemic, to keep the economy afloat, and now they're also giving me money? This doesn't sound, seem so bad. So I think it will have a big effect, I hope, on de-demonizing the power of good government, of government that helps people. And and also re-establishing the idea that, no, this, this country is unfair. It should be more fair economically. I think the pandemic put things in flux, right? There was already sort of feeling like things are unfair and the system's rigged and all that. Then the pandemic comes along like, oh my God, things are terrible, crazy. Let's do anything we can to keep everything afloat and save as many people as we can and spend trillions of dollars to keep everything going. Well, th those things together, I think, are this inflection point, are this crisis moment, not unlike 1933, 32, and when the New Deal came along in the United States, saying, wow, this is a radical time. We need radical solutions. And then you have Joe Biden, the most unradical seeming human being <laughs> practically <laughs> imaginable, a kind of generic Democrat uh, doing these things that, you know, it's funny to me and wonderful that he is doing these things that if an Elizabeth Warren or a President Sanders had done, it would be much easier to caricature for the right and Republicans as, look at this socialism. It's Joe Biden just being his nice guy self, which is a great trick, as it turns out. So I am hopeful that it will be, a, it can be a pivot point. For instance, on this child credit thing and this $300 per kid per month, which is a lot of money if you don't earn much and you have kids, it's only for a year, right? I think it's the kind of thing that people are going to go, wow, that was pretty great in 2021. Why did the Republicans take it away from me in 2022? So these things, once you start doing them, this sense of more equity, more equality economically, more fairness. Once you start doing them, there's a kind of ratcheting effect where it's hard to pull back once you've ratcheted forward, right? I sketched out at the end of Evil Geniuses the reasons this moment could turn out okay if the cards went right and if Trump and Republicans were defeated. Well, they were, 
But I got to say, I wouldn't have predicted that it would have gone so well and so close to my, if you will, prescriptions in the last chapter of my book as it has, you know, two months in. It's totally remarkable. I agree on your comments about if it had been a President Warren or a President Sanders, it would have been received very differently. So I'm going to ask the classic conservative rebuttal about the American <laughs> Rescue Plan is like, how are we going to pay for it? But actually, you have some really great ideas in your book. For example, you talk about antitrust and you talk about the U.S. government behaving like investors. In fact, they underwrite so many innovations in the U.S. and they could actually make money there. So tell us a little bit more about that. Well, there, there are all kinds of ways we can pay for it. So you mentioned the, the all of the work that the federal government has done to create innovation, make new companies, build companies. Certainly, especially in the scientific realms, in, in biotechnology, pharmaceuticals, Tesla, all of these wonderful technological innovative companies that make somebody like Elon Musk into a mega multi-billionaire depend on technology that at a very early stage, the federal government in the National Institute of Health or DARPA or all these different ways that the government invests in early technologies has made possible. And yet the government has this reputation as being the government. They're just in the way of entrepreneurs. They don't help the economy. They're just in the way. They just do regulation. What? I mean, almost every kind of great pharmaceutical innovation, and as I say, all these technological ones, various parts of the digital revolution, all have their roots in federal early investments. But we don't think of it as early investment. We just think, oh, something the government did. Who cares? Oh, no, it's it's Steve Jobs. It's Elon Musk. They did it. It goes along with this, this successful attempt for 50 years to, to make people think badly of the government. In addition to the, that kind of marketing, messaging, framing problem, if private investors had invested such that we, the American people, in the form of our government, had invested to make Tesla possible, they'd be getting money. We don't. The internet itself, an invention essentially of the Department of Defense 50 odd years ago. If private investors had invented the internet, I think they'd be getting a lot of money from it. Now, we, the people, United States government, are not. So those are just examples. And then there's other ways of thinking about just the things we own together, like Alaska decided that Alaskans really own this oil that you oil companies want to drill, so we'll sell it to you. Well, what else do we own? Well, we own the air rights over America. So if you company want to put more carbon into the atmosphere, well, pay us Americans who own those air rights for that, and so on and so on. There is a sensible way of thinking about the stuff that we own in common. You know, when broadcasting began, for instance, everybody decided, wait, we own the airwaves. And therefore, to get a license or to have a TV station or radio station, you have to be supervised, regulated by us, the people, the government. We lost all that idea of, of this kind of shared wealth. And of course, it's a balance. You know, you, you want entrepreneurialism. You know, you don't want the heavy hand of government on everything. But we went to this extreme version of a kind of capitalism, unlike really in any other 
rich country in the world. We became the outlier. You know, people talk about American exceptionalism. We became exceptional in this different way, in not providing universal health care, not providing very much of a social safety net, all these ways in which we became different. And maybe now we will become a little less different. I, you know, talk to me in five years and we'll see how it went. But I feel, knock wood, pretty hopeful. In this moment, knowing that AI is only going to become more ubiquitous, what are two things that we could be doing as everyday citizens to demand a fair world or a fair society here in the U.S.? Well, I think instead of just as political citizens, we have to have a template for looking at this. One way of doing that is reading this book. There are other ways of doing that, but not just waiting for each election. We can't just do this every four years or even every two years of just, oh, okay, we get excited for a couple months and we vote for this person rather than this person. It has to be a more steady as she goes, constant thing of like working for the candidates who really believe this stuff. And, and again, I, I, am, I have a big tent. There's not one way to skin this cat and you'll skin the cat in different ways in Colorado or Nebraska as you will than you will in Queens, New York. It has to be continuous. The, the Alaska thing, I think, is a great case study of talk about things without the pre-existing labels. I don't mind. If people want to call themselves socialists, fine. In most places in America, it's not a way to get elected to things or convince people of things unless they're already convinced. I think it is a matter of how you talk about basic fairness without the labels of socialist or free market. Just really talk about lived experience. People say think globally, and they mean various things by that. I think one thing that ought to mean for Americans is to look at all of these other countries, almost every other rich country in the world. They all have universal health care in a way that everybody can have and afford, and we don't. And that goes for so many things that are just standard almost everywhere else in the rich world. They aren't here. Now, why is that? Well, we can't afford it. Yes, we can. Didn't you just tell me the last moment you were speaking to me that we're the richest country on earth? Well, why can't we afford it? There are so many things in this public policy realm, in this social fairness realm and economic fairness realm that are, are done so much better than we do uh, elsewhere. So things that seem to, to so many Americans who aren't aware of this, like pipe dreams. Well, that's just a crazy pipe dream. No, it's working fine in Finland or in Canada or wherever you look and see how things are done. In so many ways that are pretty obvious once you look at the facts of you know, health, longevity, fairness, all the various kinds of rage Americans feel about things. It doesn't have to be this bad. We can fix it, you know. And then I just one more thing to say about this book. And what I discovered is by saying, oh, look how these evil geniuses did what they did. And, and, and geniuses, I, I, I'm not using that ironically. It was amazing, a brilliant takeover that they did and turnaround of, of our economy. There are lessons to be learned from what they did. Just, you know, turn to the forces of the light and the forces of good and away from the force of darkness and selfishness. Here, here. All right. Here's my last question. And okay. you've answered this in part, but this is a good way to end, I think. Um, looking into the future, what makes you hopeful? I mean, I don't want to depend on demographic destiny. But I think on the racism side of the coin, which isn't the subject of my book, I think while the fact that the American population 
has gotten significantly less white in the last 30 years is, of course, a big reason that these kind of spasms of bigotry and racism are now occurring. But I guess I'm hopeful that that will decrease with time as the newness of our multiracial, multiethnic America ceases to be new and continues to be more and more the fact of life. I am hopeful that nobody 40 and under has lived in anything but this unfair, obviously unequal, unfair, economically immobile country that we live in. So, you know, I I am hopeful that younger people will see this isn't fair. It can be fair. Let's make it fairer. I am hopeful that to some degree, people my age dying off and people my race dying off, I'm hopeful about those, (laughs) the effects of those, frankly. There are legit historians and political scientists who believe in cycles of various kinds. And some say the cycles of history are 15 years long or 30 years long or whatever they say, going from left to right or more economically fair to more free markety and so forth. Having studied and researched and written Evil Geniuses, I really do have a sense, not 100% conviction because it's not like a law of physics, but that we are at the end of an old cycle and the beginning of a new cycle. That from around 1930 to around 1980, you know, the beginning of the New Deal to the beginning of Reaganism, the evil geniuses, the raw deal, call it what you will. That was a 50-year cycle. And we're now at the end of this 50-year cycle. And they always overlap, right? I mean, the 70s was kind of the overlap decade between the New Deal era and the new era. And I think we're in that overlap era now. They still all go in the toilet. But I do think for many reasons, both intuitive and empirical, we're at the beginning of a new cycle. So I, I hope I'm right about that hunch. I hope you are too. Thank you so much for being on Future Hindsight. It was really a pleasure to talk to you. Uh, it was a great pleasure to talk to you and thank you so much. Next week on Future Hindsight, we're joined by Samuel G. Friedman, an award-winning professor of journalism at Columbia University, columnist and author of nine acclaimed books. His most recent is Into the Bright Sunshine, Young Hubert Humphrey and the Fight for Civil Rights. This incredible, idealistic, principled, brave, valiant Humphrey of the earlier part of his career, someone who was inextricably bound up with the civil rights activity of the 1940s and then, of course, beyond then as well, That Humphrey is unknown, and I wanted to plug in that Humphrey along with his many allies in the proto-civil rights movement, what I sometimes call the lowercase civil rights movement of the 1940s, before we get to the proper noun civil rights movement of the 50s and 60s. That's next time on Future Hindsight. And before I go, first of all, thanks for listening. You must really like the show if you're still here. We have an ask of you. Could you rate us or leave a review on Apple Podcasts? It seems like a small thing, but it can make a huge difference for an independent show like ours. It's the main way other people can find out about the show. We really appreciate your help. Thank you. This episode was produced by Zach Travis and me. Until next time, stay engaged.
This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.